Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a good friend of the podcast, Russ Jacoby. And uh, Russ is guide and outfitter with Mossback, Arizona. And uh, Russ, how you doing? You're from Flagstaff, Arizona. I've had you on the podcast before. We're good friends and uh, anxious to have you on the podcast here. Doing awesome. Glad to be here today. And uh, want to congratulate you on all the success you're doing with the podcast. Well, I appreciate that. It's kind of a interesting milestone, um, not to stew on it, but I uh, just hit uh, past 5 million downloads, uh, which is quite a number, I think, when you really think about it. Um, it's, it humbles me and makes me think of um, how happy I am to have such loyal support and, and great listeners. And, um, you know, I think it, it speaks to the great guests that, that I have on and, and the knowledge that you guys bring to the podcast. Thanks, Jay. We appreciate being here. Um, Russ, the last time we talked, obviously, you're known for uh, your buffalo, uh, but, you know, you're a huge bow hunter. Um, you're real into the techniques, the technicalities of bow hunting you're real into all sorts of technical stuff whether it be optics um electronics I- anything to do with hunting you know gps's um and i lean on your um i i lean on your expertise a lot um where do you think that you know style or what have you stemmed from i mean you're an engineer by trade correct yes sir so do you typically just take an analytical approach to most things or is it just just the way you are and and you dive into the details um well that's an interesting question i'm not a psychologist so i probably can't comment on exactly where it comes from but you know i guess dilbert would say that you have the knack and so ever since i was little i just took things apart i want to know how things make and how they fit together and what makes them work and that kind of stuff and, you know, certainly I approach most things that way. Uh, my full training as an engineer and, and other things, I like to solve problems. And I'm a gear guy. I'm a gadget guy. I like tools. So to me, the electronics and the optics and all the other tools that we have at our disposal, I really like to dissect them and understand how they work. And uh, I really like high-end stuff. And so I'm always trying everything that's available and picking the best in class. And I think that's where it comes from. You know, you and I haven't talked, but um, have you seen the new Swarovski BTX that's come out? And I know you've been a big proponent of Koa Highlanders, as as was I. Um, Have you had a chance to look through the BTX yet? And what are your thoughts if you have or if not, what are your thoughts? So I don't have my own BTX yet, but um, I called Cody up, the outdoorsman, uh, the day that he would take orders, and I think I'm one of the first ones in the pile. And I call Cody about 20 times a week. I think I'm starting to irritate him. <laughs> Cody, can you pee him off early? Uh, can I give you my firstborn child? What's it take to get mine early? I'm really excited to get them and use them. People are asking me, are you going to keep your COAs? And my answer is yes. They're like, why? And I go, well, um, you know, when you're at the truck, obviously the COAs are going to be awesome and will continue to be. Um, But when I glass, I typically have more than one person. 
um, either one of my co-guides, someone in my family, or maybe a friend along. And we never have enough optics. Um, no matter how many tens of thousands of dollars of, of optics are in the optics pile, um, we can always use one more. So once I get optics, I tend to hang on to them. So we'll be using both and are excited to have both. I think the, the new BTX is going to be a game changer in that it's going to let people bring big eyes darker and deeper than they have in the past. Yeah, I mean, for me, you, you know, I'm fortunate I have a BTX. I have it up here in Colorado with me. I, you know, I just finished my Gould's turkey hunts in Mexico and uh, came up here to Colorado for the summer and, and I've got it here with me. And one of the things that, that was a huge deciding factor for me was a simple issue of weight and weight savings and the fact that uh, you know, the koas being, you know, 14 pounds and, you know, a 10 pound tripod uh, or, you know, 12 pound tripod with the big head that you have to use, you know, once you have that in your backpack, you know, you've got like, you know, 27, 28 pounds that you're starting out with before you put water, before you put a knife, before you put, you know, anything else in your pack. Um, and I think, you said it. You said it best. I think people are going to be able to take the Swarovski BTX deeper and further than they could with the Koas. Now, I'm not saying that you know some really fit guy couldn't carry the Koas exactly everywhere that he could carry the, the the BTX, but certainly for a lot of people, it levels the playing field from a weight standpoint of being able to carry, uh, you know, and have quote unquote big eyes with you at you know four pounds five pounds and six pounds, even at the, you know, the 95 millimeter BTX is, you know, six and a half pounds. Yeah. So the way I've handled the Koas is we have humped them darker and deeper than most sane people would. And um, at this point, I'll put a plug in for Jacob. As you know, Jacob is a big part of what we do. And having that extra resource, that force multiplier, if you will, we've been able to take those into some pretty gnarly places because we have that extra help. Um, so Jacob's probably even more excited about the BTX than I am, and I'm off the charts excited because it's going to lighten up his load as far as getting in darker and deeper. It's definitely going to give us more options. Um, I suspect that um, I'll be purchasing a second or third pair of those here very soon once I get the first pair and, and get them in the fleet of our optics. For sure. Russ, let's jump over to um, Buffalo. Um, you, for many years now, have been uh, really focused on the Kaibab Plateau and the Buffalo herd and are the premier guide service for uh, the Buffalo there on the North Rim. Uh, for one, how are the Buffalo doing? And two, kind of recap uh you know, it seems like those buffalo hunts are always going on. Re kind of recap last year and recap the season that we're facing right now and, you know, kind of your forecast. We also have the draw coming up for um, buffalo, deer, uh, javelina, bighorn sheep uh, here for our fall draw. Uh, if you could tackle into some of that. Well, thank you, Jay. I appreciate that. We certainly are known for what we're doing for the bison up there on the Kaibab, and we do enjoy what we're doing there. We're able to help a lot of people um, reach that goal of harvesting their ninth or tenth animal for their big ten. Usually it's sheep and buffalo are some of the last ones that people need. Um, as far as how the buffalo are doing, 
is kind of funny. I think they're probably doing too good for their own good. Um, if people don't know this, most of the buffalo that used to spend time in the House Rock Valley essentially don't go back there. Uh, there's very little involvement of the bison in the House Rock Valley these days. So the bison spend the majority of their time up inside the Grand Canyon National Park. And the way that we're able to be successful is we work very hard um, monitoring the bison along the park boundary um, and attract them into the huntable areas with an attractant that's legal in Arizona, and that's mainly salt. And we certainly are involved in most of the bison hunts and most of the bison that are harvested up there. It's been a good way to, way to raise a family. Uh, it's been a blessing to our family with uh, friends that we've made and the contacts we've made and also allowed us to um, reinvest heavily in our guiding operations. You know, as you know, I have a day job as an engineer, so unlike some outfitters that need that as a source of income to support their family, for us, we've been able to use that as a way to increase the equipment and improve the guiding operation and the guiding services that we offer. And it's been a huge blessing for our family. Uh, my kids have been raised outdoors and have interacted with adults for most of their life and um, have been too busy to get into too much trouble. So it's been really good for our family. As far as last year and the success last year, um, last year was a little bit unique. Um, it was a, a different year than maybe the year before. The overall buffalo harvest wasn't as high as the year before, but those numbers, if you look at them as just strict numbers, are a little misleading. Um, last year, we had a huge problem with wounding losses. Um, it was the worst that I'd ever seen on the Kaibab. So we typically struggle a little bit with hunters and their shot placement, but it was particularly bad last year. So I would encourage hunters that are going to be coming up and going on the bison hunts to, to take the time to become a little bit more proficient. Um, when I tell people about that, they're usually a little bit surprised because the buffalo is a large target. And if you spend much time on the Kaibab, you know how much how thick the, the forest is, and the shots tend to be very close. People go, how close? Well, they're typically archery yardages with a scoped rifle. And for some reason, hunters in Arizona are really struggling with that. So I think part of the issue is an animal that large. They don't really focus on the basics of picking a good, clean spot and squeezing a trigger. I think hunters do that if they're shooting long range, but they don't always do that if they're shooting up close and personal. And that, that leads to some negative outcomes on those hunts. So overall, the opportunities were actually up from the year before, but the number of bison actually taken home with hunters was down because of the lack of being able to secure the bison dead and tagged and taken home with you. Russ, speaking about that, um, where do you recommend hunters shooting, basically placing the crosshairs and, and executing what you would call a perfect shot with a rifle? Um, you know, it, it, is it right behind the shoulder? Is it a lung shot? Is it, you know, break the shoulders down? And, and with that, what, what caliber, you know, with your recommendation of your shot placement, what caliber do you recommend? So we actually find that the archery hunters tend to be more successful than the rifle hunters as far as anchoring the buffalo. And most people are surprised by that. I think the reason for that is archery hunters inherently are forced to be a little more selective on their shots and tend to execute them better. Um, and a well-placed arrow, in my experience, is even more lethal than a well-placed bullet because it holds the wound open. A buffalo is so big that most of the time 
the projectile is not going all the way through. And so you poke a small hole going in and not a hole coming out, and they can plug off and not bleed very much. As far as shot placement, um, being a hunter and instructor and harvesting hundreds and hundreds of buffalo on the Kaibab, I can tell you that the best place for hunters to shoot their bison is in the chest cavity. Um, so we want them to shoot them in the heart-lung area. If you shoot a buffalo in the heart-lung area, they're not immortal. They just act like it. When you don't shoot them in the heart-lung area, they're pretty darn immortal. Um, buffalo can take a tremendous amount of punishment and not go down um, ever. So I'm constantly amazed at the amount of marginal shots that don't kill a bison that would normally kill a different type of game animal. They're just so big and husky and tough, they can take a tremendous amount of punishment. So you're, um, you're, you're actually we, talking about animals that you've seen get shot that basically shake it off and, you know, a couple weeks later you see that same bison on camera or in the field and they're fine. They're, they're perfectly fine. Yeah, and it's more than a couple of weeks later. We've got bison that we know have been wounded, and we see them a couple of weeks later, six months later, a year later, two years later. And so that certainly doesn't happen in all instances, but I believe it happens more frequently with bison than a typical game animal due to the sheer size of the animal and their ability to, to fight off infection and to overcome um, those injuries. Um, but we really would encourage the hunters to prevent that from happening um, for ethical reasons, but also for the outcomes of their hunt. Um, so part lung area. And buffalo are difficult for most hunters. They're a little bit like a bear. They don't have the crisp edges that you might see on a deer or an antelope. And so it's more difficult for the average hunter, especially in a shadowy forest, to really pick out those features that identify the heart lung area. Um, so we encourage hunters when they get drawn, spend some time looking at the internet or reach out to me, come by camp. We've got lots of pictures and video where we can show hunters the right place to shoot them. Um, the other challenge is a buffalo has a large hump on its back. And unless you've seen one cut apart, it's really hard to understand. But there could be 18 inches or more of vertebrae above the spine on a bison. And that doesn't happen on any other North American game animal. With that much spine above the bison, I'm sorry, that much bone above the spine, it's misleading as to where the chest cavity is at. You need to be shooting in the bottom third of the body, and on a perfectly broadside shot, you need to be very tight to the shoulder and even into the shoulder bone to get into the heart-lung area. What caliber? So, um, not always in it, uh, one to espouse bigger is better but bison would be an exception. In the case of the bison, the biggest caliber they can comfortably handle is usually best. So we have a lot of hunters that are using the 30 caliber magnums on up um, into the 375s and the 416s. Um, 300 gram on up, all those are exceptionally good bison calibers. Um, when you're smaller than that, I'm not going to say you can't do it, but um, you need to be absolutely certain that your shots are extremely well-placed and be prepared that it's not going to be as traumatic to the bison as a much bigger caliber. And as far as projectiles, the heavier you can shoot, the better. And the better that those bullets stay together, the better. And for the, the ethical reasons of the California condors, they encourage non-lead ammunition, but that is not an actual requirement as of today on the Kaiba. 
a number of years ago, it seemed like the game and fish. I thought it was required. Is that is that something that's changed, or was it just perceived that it was required? I think it's perceived that it was required. To my knowledge, it's never been required. It's certainly strongly encouraged, and the uh, game and fish does provide uh, ammunition um, with some partners that are available for hunters to use. And certainly taking advantage of that is a wise thing. Um, but there's lots of available options um, in the non-lead market. And I can, from personal experience, say that those those projectiles do work extremely well on bison. And I do encourage hunters to use them. We're going off on a little bit of a bunny trail here. But the California condor, do you routinely see them feeding on the gut piles and carcass of the buffalo after they've been harvested by hunters? They do. And when you say routinely, certain times of the year, it's uh, heavier used than others due to their migration patterns. Um, They're an amazing critter. It's amazing how quickly they can find even a small amount of blood and how quickly they can be on a carcass. I I know of instances where an animal is harvested right before dark one day, and the next morning at sunup, there's already condors on the carcass. So it's pretty amazing. amazing. That is amazing. How much of that do you think is they hear gunshots and such, and they, they kind of have learned that, you know, to, to be around in that area? So I'm not an expert on that, but I do know that their sense, their detectors, their sense of smell, I don't know if you call it smell for a bird, but their their ability to detect that is uh is quite fascinating if you study it. And they can detect that blood from many, many miles away. So when they're soaring up high, they can actually smell it and respond to that quickly. So it's not a gunshot thing or a learned behavior. Um, they're able to find those carcasses really quickly just because of their uh, their unique adaptation and uh, their sense of smell. Russ, right now, I believe there's uh, seasons going on for bison buffalo right you know right now. Um, tell me what's going on with the snowpack. Um, are you guys able to get around? And how is that hunt, I believe, that runs through the summer going to get better or worse? Or what is your prognosis forecast for uh, the next month or two? So the bison hunts start January 1. And generally speaking, they go year-round. So that makes them a a semi-unique animal in Arizona in that we hunt them Um, year-round. The season structure changes a little bit each year as game and fish responds to conditions up there and tries to increase the harvest. Um, This year, the spring hunt, um, which had been running for six months for the last few years, were shortened by one month. So it ends on June 1st rather than June 30th. Uh, that particular hunt, the number of tags keeps creeping up, and we're up to two dozen tags on that hunt now. And we are a couple weeks away from the end of that season. How many and tags? And the majority, um, 25. Okay, okay. So a couple dozen. The, uh, the current hunters, the majority of them have had an opportunity to harvest a bison. Um, we're not quite halfway done with the, with those hunts right now, as far as hunters harvesting. Um, I'm hopeful that over the next few weeks, we'll push that number to a hundred percent, but due to hunter schedules and bison availability, um, you know, I'm going to predict we're going to end up maybe somewhere 
50 to 75 percent, somewhere in that range. Um, it was an especially tough early season this year due to the snowpack. There was a tremendous amount of snow on the Kaibab this year, more than I've seen probably in the last 15 years. Um, so that made the early season impassable for hunters unless they have track vehicles. And the bison activity off of the Grand Canyon National Park was exceptionally low in the winter months this year. Um, that started to pick up about a month ago, and there's been good opportunities for the last month. And to date, we've had roughly three to one, three buffalo encounters for every time a buffalo has been harvested. Um, there tends to be a pretty steep learning curve for people to figure out the bison. Um, on a short season, that usually affects the uh, the outcome of the hunt. So I realize it's a five-month season, but with the amount of snowpack, for most hunters, it was more like a five- or six-week season, which is still pretty long. But the weather has a big impact on bison movement and bison success. So a good example would be a week ago, we our hunters harvested four bison in two days, which would be exceptionally busy time for us, but also pretty high bison activity off of the park. Um, on the tails of that success, a storm blew in, and with six or eight hunters on the plateau, no one's harvested any in about a week. And so it ebbs and flows with the hunter behavior and with the weather that happens on the plateau. As far as looking out for the rest of the year, um, we've had eight to 10 inches of snow in the last 48 hours on the plateau which is hard to believe if you live in Phoenix, but trust me, it happened on the Kaibab just this last couple days. Um, as that clears up, hopefully there will be some opportunities for the hunters before the, the season ends June 1st. And then immediately starting June 1st, there's a two-week hunt um, with 12 tags. And at the end of that two-week hunt, there's another two-week hunt with 12 tags. Okay, and did do the turkey hunters? I know the Kaibab Plateau has a large, you know, five or six hundred turkey tags. Does that impact the buffalo's, um, you know, movement onto, you know, huntable land off of the park, or does that not play a factor? It can play a factor, and it can play a really big factor. Uh, you know, there are certainly turkey hunters that get out there and scout ahead of season and know where the birds are at, and they hunt them in a traditional, ethical way. Um, there's some other hunters that choose to road hunt, and road hunting right in the middle of where we're trying to hunt buffalo can can make it more difficult for the buffalo to come off the park. Um, the way that we handle that is we keep track of birds that are um, nearby where we hunt, um, maybe a few miles away, and as hunters come by, we're happy to share the coordinates of where we know birds are at. And I think we're up to about a dozen birds harvested this year of hunters that came into where we're trying to hunt buffalo, had a very positive cordial meeting, gave them some GPS coordinates on a map, and they went off and got a bird and then came back and said thank you. So it's a partnership, and it seems to be working pretty well. That's great. Um, what is going on? I'm reading some stuff about the National Park Service and uh, potentially a hunt on the park and, and all of that. Give, give us an update on what's going on. So the Grand Canyon National Park um, was formed by a congressional act. The congressional act does not allow hunting in the park. 
um, even for management purposes. So we'll change the verbiage you use there just a little bit when you say there might be a hunt inside the park. Um, the Grand Canyon National Park um, believes there's too many bison for their area and would like to reduce their numbers. To make that happen, they're obviously going to have to remove the animals. And so they went through an environmental assessment um, over the last several years where they sought public input and evaluated all the available options, and they're just now rolling out the results of that assessment. And the results of the assessment are that they would like to use lethal removal in combination with some other management tools, such as fencing waters inside the park and other activities that you can read about on their website, to encourage the bison to leave the park to make them more available for sport hunting in combination with lethal capture and translocation and non-lethal capture within the Grand Canyon Park. And they would also supplement that with volunteers that would do lethal removal. Um, it's not called hunting. It's much different than what you and I would envision as hunting. Although there would perhaps be volunteers with a firearm shooting a bison, um, they're encouraged to take younger animals. They would shoot several of them over the course of a week, and those carcasses and valuable or edible portions would be removed by a different crew. Um, at the end of that week, a portion of the meat that was harvested would be available for the volunteers, and the rest would be donated. So it's certainly not put in for a draw, draw a tag, and have a trophy hunt inside the park, as you and I might expect. Um, that's not allowed within the current law structure. There's some public meetings going on right now. Um, if you've missed the public meetings, uh, it is available in an electronic format on their website. If you go to the National Park Service website, you can, you can search it up. Um, they're encouraging public comment. The, the comments that we're hoping that hunters will make that will hopefully influence the process is it's been a number of years without any substantial management activity within the confines of the Grand Canyon National Park. Before we go all the way to lethal removal, it seems reasonable to try some less aggressive approaches first, such as excluding water from available or excluding bison from available water sources. So if you fence the water hole and the bison can't get to water, they'd be forced to leave the Grand Canyon Park where they'd be available for sport hunters. So people that are interested in sport hunting bison, the best way to make that happen and make more tags available is to get the bison to leave the park. The best way that we know of to make that happen is to exclude them from water sources within the park. The public comment period that's open right now, saying, hey, I don't agree with this or I don't want you to do this, isn't going to change the process. Reaching out and saying we'd like to influence the process by trying less aggressive um, options first is a great way for hunters to make a positive impact on the resource and help themselves increase the number of available tags. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what I hear you saying is you're personally, you're really not for government employees uh, going in and harvesting bison inside the park where they could simply fence off water sources and it would create a situation where the buffalo would have to wander onto the national forest, which would then allow sport hunters uh, to harvest the animals and take all the edible portions of meat to their families and, and what have you. Absolutely. And 
it seems like a more cost-effective measure. Um, they're going to do water exclusion barriers anyway. Um, that, coupled with the other expenses, would increase the cost of the park. Um, if we start off in a stepwise portion of trying the waters first and then adding the other tools as needed to meet their management objectives, it seems to be a good option that allows sports hunters those opportunities, but it also seems more fiscally responsible. If you look at the Grand Canyon Park and other government agencies, most of them are struggling financially. So I think it's a great way for them to save some money and still meet their objectives. Do you know of any other situations in national parks where similar situations have happened and what have been the outcomes and, you know, ha have, have they done similar things, say in Yellowstone or, or whatnot, where, um, you know, it has benefited, you know, hunting or sport hunting? Yeah. So I actually asked that question to the experts at the public meeting that they held recently in Flagstaff. And we don't really have the time to go into all the details of every situation, but there have been precedents of lethal removal with inside parks and also hunting along the boundaries of parks. And depending on how well those management activities are implemented, it can have a positive effect on sport hunting adjacent to the park or a negative one. And there are cases where large numbers of animals have been rounded up, hauled off, and slaughtered um, because the management techniques weren't effective at getting the animals to relocate. I'm very familiar with the water sources on the park, very familiar with the volunteer system that's available. I believe that we have a volunteer base willing to help accomplish those objectives and that doing water exclusion barrier or bison exclusion barriers at waters within the park will be an effective method at getting them to leave and making hunting adjacent to the park boundaries successful in meeting the current bison objectives. Good stuff. Um, well, I'm glad that you're involved in trying to shape and, you know, influence as best you can and, and try and get a positive outcome there for hunters um, and find a reasonable solution for the park service. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the upcoming fall draw. We have a deadline on June 13th, which is Tuesday, uh, for buffalo, for bighorn sheep, both Rocky Mountain and desert, uh, for deer, uh, turkey, and javelina. Uh, specifically, I want to ask you about deer. Uh, and your outlook on deer for this, this coming fall. Uh, I know your partners in the guide business, you guys have been very successful up on the Arizona Strip, uh, as well as I believe on the Kayabab, and just get a little bit of your input as, as to what you see going on and some of the hunts that you're eyeballing and any changes or you know anything that's going on that you think is of note. Well, it's a great time to be a mule deer hunter in northern Arizona. Um, I think there's a wide range of opportunities available for many different hunters. Um, you know, for some hunters, 150-inch deer is a giant deer. And for other deer hunters, a deer over 200 is a giant deer. And then there's other hunters that a deer over 240 is a giant deer. And the good news is we have all of those opportunities available in northern Arizona. So... Uh, Certainly north of the Grand Canyon um, are all the popular hunting areas um, in the units 12 and 13. And you've got early hunts, you've got archery hunts, muzzleloader hunts, rifle hunts. 
and late hunts as well. And between all those seasons, there's ample opportunities for hunters to, to go for the type of hunt that they want. Um, on a strip in 13A and 13B, um, they're the deer that dreams are made of. And I think the outlook for this year is, is for exceptional horn growth and the continuation of last decade of giant deer coming off the strip. Just absolute bumper deer. And, and I believe that will continue to happen. Um, as you move over into the Kaibab, I think Kaibab is having a resurgence of its former glory, if you will. Um, you probably won't see the sheer numbers and certainly not the sheer size of deer that you'll see come out of Unit 13, but the sheer volume of deer there is pretty impressive. Um, when we're bison hunting, one of our biggest challenges is not hitting deer in the road. There are literally so many deer up there that it's hazardous to travel the road day or night um, just from the sheer number of deer they're going to try to jump in front of your truck. So anyone traveling up there is advised to be careful. Um, as far as other units in northern Arizona, there's a lot of opportunities that, that get overlooked um, for archery and other higher draw on hunts on the south side of the Grand Canyon. And there are certainly good deer in those other units. Um, the deer densities for the giant deer are a lot lower, um, but there still are good deer in those other units. And that's a great way for people that are going to invest a little bit of time to be successful on a really nice deer. Russ, specifically um, talking about the Kaibab Plateau, you've got the you know 12A West and the 12A East, which is you know west of I believe what is it Highway 89. 67 or 67 um and then yeah. east of highway 67 and that's basically you know from jacobs lake down to the park boundary if you're just looking in, in simple terms you've got an east and a west um i noticed that the dates uh for those late hunts uh are uh november 24th through december 3rd and it seems like um you know that that's prime rut I was wondering if you could speak to those two late hunts. It looks like the uh, 12A East has 30 tags and 12A West has 100, which I don't have last year's numbers right in front of me, but 100 tags seems like that's down on the west side for the late hunt. Can you speak to um, the, the quality of that hunt, the rut, and you know tag allocations as far as from previous years? Sure. So... The east side and the west side, the, the numbers vary up and down over the course of a decade, and, and that tracks with game and fish management objectives. Um, I wouldn't look at it one year to next year and really glean too much from that versus an overall trend. Um, the late hunt is more popular for the trophy hunters than the early hunt. Um, certainly the deer are still there, but they're maybe harder to find in the early season than in the later season due to the rut and also the deer migration. Uh, the season dates, they move forward or back a week or two every year just by the rotation of the calendar. And, you know, it's impossible to predict when you apply for them what kind of weather we're going to have that time of year. Um, ideally, you get the right kind of weather and it pushes the deer off the plateau into the lower country and it concentrates and it makes them easier to find. When that happens, um, I think you see the success rate on the giant deer goes up. Um, if you have a milder winter and they aren't pushed off as much, then, then that has a different impact on the hunt. As far as east side and west side, it's no big surprise that the majority of the deer are on the west side, but there are some good deer on the east side as well, just not in the sheer numbers. Um, but where the deer numbers and the tag numbers also come hunter numbers. So you can kind of pick which type of hunt you're more interested in. The, um, 
the late hunts that happen in that late November, early December timeframe, hunters need to be aware that there are times where the snow can be quite substantial even that early in the year. It doesn't always happen, but I've seen two, three, four feet of snow on a November hunt, and that certainly affects a hunter's ability to access those areas. Does that answer your questions? Yeah, and as far as rut, I mean, that's right smack during the middle of the rut, is it not? They're certainly active very ruddy and get some movement and get some frisky. Um, as far as the peak days of the rut, I don't know if that's as important for a rifle hunter, but there's certainly a lot of ruddy activity starting and moving the deer and, and stuff happening that makes those late hunts popular. One one unit that we haven't talked about is 12B, and I know you, you know 12B very, very well. Um, speak to the difference in 12B from, say, 12A East and 12A West. Jay, I was almost hoping you were going to forget about 12B, and maybe fewer people would be in for it. In all seriousness, uh, 12B and 12A are much different hunts. Um, in 12A, you're hunting mostly resident deer that live there year-round. In the early season, a lot of them are up on the plateau, and they drop off when the cold weather comes. Um, 12B is much different. 12B certainly has some resident deer, but the majority of deer that you hunt in 12B, especially on the really late hunts, are deer that have migrated down out of Utah. And there's a fence now on the boundary with Utah that's intended to help with the, uh, the vehicle collisions on that highway, which in past years has been a pretty big problem. Um, contrary to what most hunters think, Utah did not install the fence to keep the deer on their side of the state line. It's actually there to help with the vehicle collisions. But the deer are smart, and they figured out that the ways to get through that fence, there are uh, travel corridors established for them to use. But it has taken a little bit of time for that to happen, and it does affect the migration of the deer. And there's a big deer migration that happens, especially on the late hunts. 12B late um, was actually my children's, both of them, their first deer hunt. And I'm happy to say that both of them harvested a really nice deer by putting in for that 12B late tag. You may not see quite the caliber of deer that you would get, let's say, in Unit 13, um, but I do think that you have an opportunity for bigger deer in 12B than you might in much of 12A. There certainly are really nice deer in 12A as well. Um, but 12B is super popular with the locals. It's maybe that interim hunt, maybe not quite the same draw odds as 12A, but the not as difficult draw odds as, as 13. So it's kind of in the middle, if you will. When I'm looking at the regulations, it has an early hunt for 12B and a late hunt for 12B, but then there's a 12B west and uh, uh, early hunt and late hunt. Am I reading this correct, that if you have the 12B hunt, you can hunt the east and west. If you have 12B west, you can only hunt the west. That's correct. And when you start talking about 12B east, you're talking about the Korea Plateau. And the Korea Plateau is an amazing place, and there are some tremendous deer there. But deer densities on the Korea are probably lower than anywhere else in northern Arizona. So hunters that draw that tag need to be aware that they might cover tremendous amounts of area to find a deer. Um, when you do find a deer there, they're known for being exceptionally heavy and draw dropping. So 12B East is a really cool tag to have 
Um, I think the majority of the hunters that draw the 12B east and west hunt end up hunting the west side because they give up on the east side pretty early. Because of the lack of, of um, the amount of deer? Yeah. It's hard for the average hunter to go in there and keep at it long enough to be successful. So they'll usually put a day or two into it, give up, and go to the west side where there are much higher deer densities. Um, the access in the Priya Plateau is much, much different than on the west side. Um, we sheep hunt the east side and the west side, and getting up um, on the east side um, can be extremely challenging when the weather is inclement. Um, but the distances you travel, the services that are available, and the sandy conditions make it really, really tough for all but your most prepared hunters. Russ, let's talk a little bit about uh, the strip in, in 13A and 13B. And I know you've had your own uh, tags there. I believe you had an archery tag. And um, your guide service, the guys you work with, obviously have had unbelievable success up there on the strip um speak a little bit about the strip and what you're hearing as far as you know outlook for this fall and you know kind of the overall gist of, of what's going on up there so anytime you talk about the strip i think we need to do so in hushed and reverent tones it's the holy land of mule deer hunting if you will and, I mean, Jay, you just can't even begin to describe it. The, the deer up there are just the kind of deer that people would sell their children for. I mean, these deer are just gigantic. And we've all seen their pictures. I do think that the average hunter mistakenly understands what goes on on the strip. Um, Chad Woodruff, who I work with quite closely, spends an inordinate amount of time on the strip. And they kill these giant deer. But the amount of effort, blood, tears, sweat, trucks, and tires that go in to make that happen, you can't even convey it. People won't even believe it if you explain it to you. Anyone that's seen my Super Duty knows how hard I use my truck. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for me to put 20, 40, 60,000 miles a year on every one of my trucks. And they're not grocery getter miles. They're the hardest miles you can physically put on a pickup truck. In the time that I had my Super Duty, I put 300,000 very rough miles on it. In that same time frame, Chad Woodruff purchased 20 pickup trucks, and that is not an exaggeration. Um, the sheer volume of investment of time and energy and effort that goes into finding those deer, it is just unbelievable. They're just not everywhere. You've got to work really hard to find them. They find them by running all those trail cameras and spending a tremendous amount of time up there. As far as outlook this year, it, it should be above average, and there's going to be some really big deer taken on the strip this year. What a great time to have a tag. For sure. You know, I noticed this year um, they, they moved the 13A rifle hunt back in front of uh, the 13, or excuse me, the 13A hunt is after the 13B hunt, where last year it was flip-flopped. So in other words, the, the rifle hunt will be November 10th through November 19th, and the 13A hunt will overlap that and be the 17th through the 26th. Um, I, I think last year, well, my, I guess my question is, do you really think moving it a week here or a week there really impacts the quality of the hunt 
I, I really, it seems like the same big deer get shot every year. Maybe the quality of experience is a little bit better with a little bit more ruddy deer. Your thoughts on that? Well, I tell people, we don't go to, to the strip to have fun. You're here to kill a big deer, shut your mouth, and do what you're told. Um, now, that may be a little forceful, but people need to understand, this isn't a country club hunt. This is working your butt off to kill a deer. Um, weather, season dates, all that plays a minor role. But when you finally draw that strip deer tag, you don't want to hear, oh, this is a week later or a week earlier or something like that. Those are excuses. you got to step up and make it happen. And... You know, we're very proud of our track record. Our guys work very hard to pull it together no matter when those seasons fall. Um, there generally is a little bit of overlap between those seasons, and that can be a little bit interesting because, obviously, we're taking hunters in both of those areas. And, you know, if the seasons were truly split, that might make it easier for you to finish one season and jump on the next one. But we haven't had a problem with that. We've been able to to cover both hunts very well, make it happen for hunters in, in both units, um, but it does get a little bit creative on how you move camps around and how you move um, resources around in the transition between those two seasons. What advice would you give to guys that are thinking of putting in for 13A, 13B for the archery hunt? Um, it has its challenges as well. So the archery hunt is a really cool hunt. Um, I really like the archery hunt, being an archery hunter. Um, if you're an archery hunter, don't settle for a rifle tag. Do the archery hunt. When you're going to do that hunt, be prepared that it can be very tough conditions and you're going to have to work at it. It's not just, I've got a tag, that means I'm entitled to a giant deer. It doesn't work that way. Um, I think, generally speaking, all the experts are going to tell you that B has probably got a little bit of a step up on 13A. And so, for most hunters, they're going to really want the B tag over the A tag. Um, but that means the draw odds might be a little bit better in A than B. So you have to decide which is more important to you. Um, is five more inches of, of horn um, more important, or is a little bit better draw odds important? And that's a personal decision for each hunter. My personal nod is that B is better than A, um, but they're both really cool tags to have. Russ, I want to take a second here and make sure the listeners are aware that I have sponsors of this podcast. And you can go in the show notes uh, of, of this. When you push play on this episode, you can read the show notes and get the different promo codes and discounts that the sponsors offer. I do want to thank GoHunt.com, Insider, uh, Kuyu.com, Phonescope.com, and The Outdoorsman's for their support of this podcast and encourage the listeners to support those sponsors. And this podcast is free and will continue to be free to the listeners because of the support uh, of those sponsors. And just go down in the show notes. Uh, you've got all of their contact information, and you can see different uh, J. Scott promo codes and such to, to receive discounts from these companies. And I thank my listeners for their loyal support, and I also thank... Uh, the, the sponsors of this podcast. Russ, I want to jump a little bit to Bighorn Sheep. And Bighorn Sheep is actually where you and I met. Uh, we actually met in Unit 15D. Uh, you had now our mutual friend, Kelly Gibson, with you, and we met. And um, you had had the uh, 15D tag the, the, the prior year. And uh, Dara and I were actually guiding the super raffle tag holder 
um, and we ran into you scouting, and we've been friends ever since. I uh, wanted to get uh, your take on uh, Bighorn Sheep and some of the units that you like, some of the units that you like to guide in and uh, give a little bit of your uh, spiel, if you will, or breakdown of the units that you prefer uh, for for the Bighorn Sheep. So we um, we guide Bighorn Sheep anywhere in the state, but we tend to focus on the areas closer to home um, because, quite frankly, most of the other guides and outfitters don't want to touch those units because they're pretty difficult to do. And we tend to excel in those areas where you got to work a lot harder. So everything along the Colorado River corridor, um, we would be really expert in those units. So the 15s, the 13s, um, anything along the corridor, there are some other hunts in that area that are much less popular, and we can help the hunters in any of those units. In the 15s and the 16s, it's no big secret, and it's written in the regulations, that there's a disease outbreak there. It has decimated the, the sheep populations, which is unfortunate. Um, I think that same type of cyclical sheep numbers where they rise and fall has been happening um, certainly during my experience in Arizona for the last 40 or 50 years. And, and I think that will continue to happen in the future, such as um, sheep populations in a modern established world. That has good and bad repercussions for hunters. Um, when you look at a unit like 15D, in 2010, I think there were nine tags, and that slowly crept up, and it's dropped off to where we're down to three or four tags this year, I believe. When you see that happen, I think um, it causes a freak out or scare among many of the hunters. You certainly would expect the draw results or the draw rates to go up in units to have those disease outbreaks. So if you're the type of hunter that's willing to, um, to deal with those conditions, it might be a good thing for you because you'd have a better chance of actually drawing a tag. Um, it's certainly not a good thing for the sheep population, and it's not a good thing for you if you're trying to kill the biggest sheep ever in Unit 15D. Uh, the older age class rams are going to be especially hit hard by those disease conditions. Um, but there are some other units that are coming on. If you look at 12B, this year I believe there's four tags in there. And that's up from the last few years. And so that's slowly creeping up. So if you look at the regulations and you look at draw tags available, a unit that has four tags obviously is going to have more opportunity than a unit that has one tag. So you don't even have to talk about the units individually if you just look at the draw numbers. Um, the ones with the disease in them are highlighted in the regulations. Hunters should be aware of that if they choose to apply for those units. Um, we're not shying away from those units, but we are letting hunters know they may not have that upper age class ram available to them that they might have had in the past. Russ, I, you mentioned 12B. Obviously, you're talking about 12B East. And if I look at the harvest results from last year, there were four tags. One person did not fill. They killed three out of four sheep. There were two... Uh, well, they're going off rings, so seven-year-old rings and one six-year-old ring with with scores, you know, 147, 149, and 149. Um, do you believe that there's better sheep than that in 12B East? There are. Um, if you look at prior years, there's been some rams killed in the 160s. Uh, I think it's tough to find a 170-plus ram in that unit. They do exist, but it's just not the type of vegetation and climate that grows lots of big rams. 
Um, but big is relative. Um, a ram that's seven, eight, ten years old is an older, mature ram. They just don't have the sheer size to their horns that you might see in some other units. Um, the conditions that those sheep survive in are really tough. You know, the groceries are different than what they get in some other units. They're not country club sheep. Those are real sheep. So if score in the record book is what's most important to you, then that might not be your unit. If a wilderness hunting experience for a mature, older ram that's wise and wily in some of the most beautiful country in northern Arizona is your alley, then um, I think that's a really exceptional sheep hunt. Speak about uh, 12A and 12B West. There's there's one tag on that hunt. Uh, and the the uh, hunter last year it ended up shooting, it looks like, a three-year-old. What, what do you say about 12A and 12B West? So those hunts are a little bit different than the east side. Um, the 12B East is a very arduous, very mountainous type hunt. And you can hunt it from top to bottom or you can hunt it from bottom to top. And there's lots of cliffs. Um, it's a really rough country type hunt. When you move into 12B and 12A and you're there on the boundary on those units and you're over in Snake Gulch and all that country, um, those hunts are a little bit different. You don't see as many sheep, but I do think the potential is there for, for some pretty nice sheep. Um, I, you know, I don't want to disparage the hunter that had the tag last year because that's a pretty tough hunt, but there are better sheep in that, in that unit. And we've, we've killed bigger sheep and been more successful on those hunts. I will tell you that it's not uncommon to glass all day to find just a few sheep. And that's not the type of hunt that some hunters can handle. Um, when you have to work your butt off for a week to find a really nice, respectable ram, there's a lot of hunters that just really can't or won't do that. Um, there certainly is a lot of cliff country in there, and there's not the sheer numbers of sheep that you'll see in other units. And I'm going to tip my hat to Chad Woodruff here for just a second. I've personally hunted with Chad on that hunt many times. And that guy is so good at finding sheep in the nastiest cracks in that entire mountain. Um, Chad and I have repelled off of cliffs you probably shouldn't be on many times to recover sheep in that unit. And uh, it's not an easy hunt, um, but it is a fun hunt. And um, not quite the numbers that you would see perhaps in 12B East. Um, but there are some decent rams in there. Does that answer your question? Sure. Um, speak about 13B North, which is kind of the crown jewel, uh, I believe, of, of that area up there, and 13B South and kind of the contrast between the two. So I think you'll see that when you look at the number of tags available. Um, anybody that's driven through the Virgin River Gorge and driven over by Mount Dellenbaugh can obviously see the differences in the topography. Um, you know, when you're in that north part up there in those canyons and cliffs, I mean, it's it's real sheep country, and it's it's overpowering. And there have been some tremendous rams taken in there. Um, there are great rams taken in the other part of the unit, and I know from the deer cameras that we run further south, you'd be amazed at the places that sheep go down there. Um, so for someone that has one of those tags, and can put the time, the effort, and energy into it, um, the southern units can be um, a good hunt. Um, but certainly there's much more opportunities in the north part. Okay. What would you say 
you know, you you really like 15D, but obviously, like you spoke, we had a pneumonia breakout there, and they have dropped it to four tags. I was in there last year, and my hunter was able to ar- harvest a 10-year-old ram, which which was very important to him, harvesting an old ram. Um, it's it's really hard when you've seen, you know, your own personal survey data where you know you were surveying you know a hundred rams and you know five or six hundred ewes and see that number you know get dropped by you know 60 70 80 percent that still leaves quite a few rams in 15d i was just curious to get your take on that yeah uh, that's always a phone call i get this time of year russ should i put in in 15d and I don't tell hunters yes or no. I explain the situation for them, inform them, and then let them make a good decision. You know, we have lost more than half of the sheep in that unit. Like you're saying, it's 60, 70, maybe 80%. Um, how many more will die between now and when the season starts? Well, that's anyone's guess. But the sheer volume of sheep in that unit, even when you cut it in half or three quarters, still has more sheep than many other units. And you're right, there's still some great opportunities there. It's hard to say how hard the biggest age class rams have been hit until, you know, the disease kind of runs its full course. But certainly, if there were 10 rams that people would be ecstatic for in the past, now there's three. Um, Now, is one or two of those going to croak before the season starts? It's hard to say. But if you understand that you may not have the upper age class X1 RAM available to you and you're still okay with that, then I wouldn't be afraid to put in for that unit. Um, If that's a problem for a hunter, then I would discourage them from applying for that hunt. I don't want anyone to go on a sheep hunt and be disappointed about their experience in the end. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good answer to the question. Um, Russ, you had sent me a text um, a while back saying that there was kind of an epidemic going on, so to speak, uh, in the Flagstaff area uh, with with moths destroying taxidermy trophies in Flagstaff. What's going on with that? So um, I come home from work one day. I come into the living room where we have a bunch of our mounts. My wife is over overly awesome, and unlike most hunters, my mounts aren't in the garage. They're in our living room. And I look up on the, my bear mount on the wall, and there's all these light-colored spots. And I'm like, I never noticed those before. And I walk over and look at them, and I have all these tan moths. They're about a half-inch long, and when their wings are closed, they're maybe an eighth-inch wide. And they're just hanging out on my mount. Well, that's not cool. Um, they weren't there yesterday. Where the hell did they come from? So I pick up the phone and I call Chris Faber over at Mountain View Taxidermy. I'm like, Chris, I got these little nasty guys and what the hell are they doing on my mounts? He's like, oh my gosh, you need to deal with that immediately. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, come over to the shop and take a look. So I go over to the shop and uh, he started telling me about these little moths. I don't know the scientific name. I don't know what they're called. I know what I call them and I can't say it on your podcast. (laughs) Um, but they eat the hair on your mount. They graze on your hair and all the hair falls out. Chris had a person's buffalo, three-quarter life-size mount buffalo, and they had infested this gentleman's buffalo and eaten about, I don't know, 10% of the hair off of his buffalo, just big gobs of hair falling off this beautiful mount. 
Um, and Chris had gotten the bugs killed and was in the process of restoring the mount. Well, needless to say, seeing a mount sitting there with the hair falling out of it got my attention. And so I took to a mini public service campaign of putting it on Facebook, texting everyone I know saying, hey, password, if you've got these bugs, call Chris and get some information. What Chris recommended was taking your trophies, putting them in a small confined area, and fogging them with a bug killer that you can get at Home Depot and other places, and it's just a bug killer. Um, so I did that with every mount in my house, and I didn't do it once. I did it three times um, to make sure that I don't have bugs or eggs or larvae or anything anywhere, and we're keeping a close watch on our mounts. In my case, we caught it before any damage was done. What Chris was telling me is that it's been an issue in southern climates for a number of years, but they've only recently come to northern Arizona. Um, and he encouraged hunters to have a regular um, program at their house with an exterminator where they just spray for normal bugs that you would do with an exterminator. That will help alleviate the problem. Um, but where you have an infestation or start of a hatch, if you will, of these moths, it would be wise to respond quickly and, as I call it, a great big hammer to make sure that you don't have these guys in your trophy room. Um, in my case... There are some irreplaceable trophies, and I'm sure that's true for many hunters. Uh, I have a lifetime big orange, life-size bighorn sheep mounted, and if they had gotten into my bighorn sheep, um, I don't know if I would still be a sane person today. <laughs> have, did Chris say that you know a lot of people are noticing the same thing right there in flag? So I haven't done a complete survey of all the hunters, but I've tried to pass the word and make them aware of it. Um, and what I saw is some hunters freaked out, went home and checked their mounts. I mean, they're out there like picking through the hairs, looking at it. And other guys are like, eh, I'm fine. Well, the eh, I'm fine guys might find out they're not so fine in a few months when all their hair starts falling out. Um, and people were texting me and asking, what do they look like? I'm like, you'll know when you find them. If you've got a moth or some other bug on your mount, it's not supposed to be there. Contact your taxidermist and get some information and uh, do something about it, or you're going to be sorry that, and wish that you had. Um, so I, I think it's something good to know about. I mean, I've lived in Arizona my whole life. I've lived in southern Arizona, northern Arizona, and I've never had a bug problem until just recently. Um, so I don't know if it's a migration of the bugs, global warming. I don't know. I know that I had bugs, and I don't have them now. And we're doing everything we can to keep track of that and monitor them and watch to make sure we don't have a problem. I can't believe that I was selected out. Um, I would suspect that other hunters might have the same situation going on. For sure. For sure. Um, Russ, we ha we've had a good conversation today. What else is going on in your world Um Anything kind of concluding thoughts or anything going on that you want to tell me about? Well, I drew a Unit 10 archery that I'm pretty darn excited about. So uh, our good friend Kelly Gibson and myself drew that tag together, and we're really, really looking forward to that hunt. Um, I, knew you drew, I knew you drew, but I didn't know Kelly drew. May, yeah. I don't think I knew that. Kelly and I put in together um, – and I guess I'll put a plug into doing something nice for someone else at this point. Um, when it's time to apply, Kelly and I obviously always talk. I'm like, dude, put in with me. He's like, why? And I'm like, I've got more points than you, and we're going to get drawn. 
He's like, you think? I'm like, I know it. He's like, all right, let's try it. So uh, do your buddy a solid, and sometimes it'll it'll pain that forward. It'll help you out. Um, it didn't. <laughs> Russ, you're not putting in with me with my bonus points for sheep. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't appreciably hurt my chances. It helped Kelly's, but more importantly, we get to hunt together. That's um, awesome. Should be a good year in Unit 10. We're really looking forward to it. On a personal note, um, my daughter Kaylee comes home from her mission in August. And I'm re- really excited to have her back home. We've missed her tremendously. And, um, you know, they tell you you'll adjust to it after they're gone for three months. In my case, I never did. So it just about killed me um, being separated for the last year and a half. So we're super excited to have her coming back home again. That's awesome. I'm sure she's will be happy to and glad to be back home and see everybody. And, and um, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, bouncing back to your unit 10 hunt, uh, you know, one of the things that's jumping out at me about that archery elk hunt is, you know, only a hundred tags, uh, no cow tags. And I think the drop in tag numbers is going to make the quality of hunt better. Um, you know, I think if they could keep it at a hundred tags and keep the early rifle tag numbers down as well, I think unit 10 can have a resurgence of you know, seeing some of that quality that we saw in, say, you know, 04, 05, 06, kind of in that time frame, I think the increased number of tags have kind of dropped the overall quality of the unit, but there's still some giant bulls in there. Yeah, there's obviously giant bulls in there, and we know where some of them are at. We're hoping it works out for us this year. Um, it's a great year to have a tag. It's wet in there. There are some tremendous bulls. Um, I think in Arizona, we're spoiled. Uh, We don't think of a bull being tremendous unless he breaks that magic 400 mark. Um, But Unit 10 has a ton of really respectable bulls that that we're spoiled to kind of look over in Arizona. So as a safety net, even, for a bull that you, quote, might settle for, would be off the charts in most hunting opportunities. So we're really excited for that hunt. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think the other thing is those early rifle tag numbers, I want to say they're down to like 40 tags. They were up as high as 100, and I I think that really took its toll on, you know, some of those 350, 360, 370 bulls, um, and I'm hoping that they'll keep the tags down a little bit and let Unit 10 come back to, you know, it used to be arguably the best unit in the state, and then it kind of dropped down a little bit. But I definitely think with 100 archery tags, quality of hunt is going to be high. And with good moisture, uh, I think the bugling, I just think that the experience of that hunt is going to be fantastic. That's what we're hoping for. Um, and we'll see how it works out. Um, there's worse problems to have in life than having a, an early archery elk tag in your pocket. Yeah, especially in Arizona. Absolutely. Um, It's probably time for a public service announcement, too. Uh, Jacob gets his driver's license in July, so you need to warn all your podcast readers to stay off the sidewalk. Yeah, for sure. That's um, Although he's probably got more miles in driving a vehicle than most kids his age, um, as much as he's probably driven up on the Kaibab Plateau and, and for you on all those buffalo hunts. So... But, uh, yeah, for sure, uh, I would say uh, lock women and children up and um, keep the dogs off the sidewalk because Jacob is on the loose. Yeah, and um, if you haven't seen our fleet of Ford pickup trucks lately, 
Um, we've added two new Super Duties to the fleet, and we've ordered a 2018 Raptor. And uh, Jacob will certainly get seat time in the Raptor, and um, I'm not expecting him to keep it at 20 miles an hour on dirt roads. So if you see a white Raptor screaming by, uh, with a red-headed crazy man behind the wheel is most likely my son. Nice. Um, I don't know if you knew, but I switched to Ford Raptor, um, I guess, about a year ago. Uh, might might be two, two years ago, actually, and um, really enjoy uh, driving a Ford. I, I, there's a lot of things I like about Ford, and um, uh, the Raptor's one of them. We certainly are very pleased with our Ford products. Um, I tease the Chevy and Dodge guys, um, but the Ford has worked out exceptionally well for us. Um, doing the bison hunts, we need the bigger trucks. I know the Toyotas were popular with the hunters. Um, I put a, a Buffalo in my truck last weekend that um, would have more than exceeded the capacity of most of the, the trucks out there. Shoot, it's and, heavier uh, than the Toyota trucks. <laughs> Not a lot heavier, but um, <laughs> the hunter that took it home had to have it cut into many pieces before he could get it in his truck. So um, certainly um, for our style of hunting and what we're doing, um, those products are working out great for us. Let's talk um, in conclusion here. Let's just get your thoughts. I know there's been a lot of scuttle uh, about um, trail cameras and trail camera use in Arizona, and I know that I'm betting that probably something is going to happen. I don't know if it will happen right away. Um, obviously, it will greatly impact uh, what you're doing up on the Kaibab Plateau. Question one is, do you think that something can be done about trail cameras without doing a blanket all across the state, you know, ban on trail cameras? Can we do something like in some of the, you know, 13A, 13B you know, Unit 9 for Archery Elk, some of those units where you got high traffic areas where you're actually, the cameras in my mind are creating a problem of hunters going and checking their camera and basically eliminating those water sources uh, and, and kind of ruining it for everyone. Is there some sort of happy medium in your mind that can be accomplished in the trail camera category? Wow, that's a tough one, Jay. Um, I know from just the, the Facebook posts that I've read about it is that people are all over the place on how they feel about the topic. Um, so maybe let me try to, to bring some compromise to a very difficult situation. You know, our country was founded on compromise. If you look at the founding fathers, you had two completely opposite sides that had to come together in order to make it work. Well, you can't say, I hate all trail cameras, and if you use a trail camera, you're the Antichrist, I'm never going to speak to you again. I mean, and you can say that, but it's not going to be good for anyone. And if you're a trail camera guy, you can't say, you know what, I need to have, like, real-time satellite viewing of my cameras 124-7, and if I don't, you're disparaging me. You know, there's a compromise here. Um, and for an example, I'll point out what we're doing on the Kaibab. Um, the Kaibab is probably unique in any hunt in Arizona. And when I say the Kaibab, I'm talking specifically about the bison hunts. We're very proud of our track record up there. Now, I can't tell you that every hunter that's ever went up there thinks I'm wonderful. Some of them hate my guts, and some of them love me. 
and, and it is what it is. I try to always be nice to everyone and do the right thing by everyone out there. And if someone doesn't feel that way, I apologize. It was not intentional. But what we're doing with trail cameras is we have the trail cameras there. Any hunter that wants to see what's on my trail camera, I'll walk in there with him, pull the card out, and give him a copy of the pictures. Um, and we're very open and honest and cordial in how we interact with other hunters. And I take some flack from that, from other guides and other outfitters and from some other hunters. Like, why do you help other people? I'm like, really? Since when in hunting, because we got to the situation where it's about me, 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 and it's about screwing the next guy over. You know, everyone's in a different spot in the hunting community. There's some very experienced guys, and there's some really new guys and gals. And I just think you miss out on some really good experiences by being a jerk to everyone you come in contact with. Um, by doing that, what we found is most hunters choose not to put up cameras. We kind of run the whole thing, and people are welcome to see what we're doing. If someone wants to hunt a spot, we'll move to a different one. And keeping that, like, pay-it-forward mentality that we try to push in all of our lifestyle has worked good in our hunting style. Now, I'm not saying that that model will work everywhere. Um, some of these big deer and the energy and effort that went, that went into it, you don't want to just give that away to someone else. That's not fair to the person that did all the work and effort. Um, but when you walk up to a water hole and there's 20 cameras there, you know, maybe there's another way to do that. So I do think that we need to figure out a way to improve the situation. Uh, I think it's unfortunate if that has to be legislated. I think we as sportsmen need to do a better job of policing ourselves and not expecting the government's going to come in and do a better job of that than we can do ourselves. Um, so I would encourage the, the people that feel the most strongly about it and the people that have the most to lose by the changes to come together and figure out a solution that's equitable for everyone. And if you don't, I think what's going to happen is we're going to have something legislated which is going to upset everyone um, because it's not going to be exactly what every single person wanted because um, that can't happen, right? Yeah. Are you recommending, I mean, so give me an example. Are you saying if there's 20 water holes on a camera, why can't, sportsmen get together and say why don't we run one we'll share in the battery expense we'll check it and then everybody will have access to what's on that camera that might be one solution and maybe that's not a good solution for everyone but where i'm coming from is this if sportsmen recognize a situation and they respond to it themselves they've got control over the outcome if they don't respond to it themselves and the government steps in it's likely to be a solution that you're not happy with. So let's lay out two likely scenarios. Let's say you and I are both guiding the same water hole, and there's a giant buck hitting it. Well, if you have a camera there and I have a camera there, we're both getting the same pictures. Well, Jay, if we trust one another, why put two cameras there or 20 or 30? Put one or two cameras and both of us share in the pictures and the expense. If you are honest and we're both honest, that works out. Now, if the government steps in and says, you can't put cameras on water holes, we both lose out because neither of us have a camera there now. Well, wouldn't it have been better for us to figure out a system that works for everyone than a system that works for no one? Yeah, I mean, it, and that, that definitely makes sense. Now, you got to be careful. 
something that makes sense is really difficult for the average human to understand. <laughs> um, what we do on the Kayabab is not perfect for everyone, and I get that. But I have talked until I blew in the face. If you're not okay with what we're doing, don't go on com and just bitch about it. Come look me in the eye, shake my hand, and say, Russ, I would rather you do this instead. I'm happy to listen to you and try to make that work. Um, but bitching about it isn't going to change anything. Coming up with a solution of a better way to do it, or better yet, put your money where your mouth is and do something differently, is great. That's the American way. Let's improve the situation. And I totally for that. And that applies to not only trail cameras, but everything else in hunting. If there's a way that we can come together and work as sportsmen to common overall good, that's a better situation. And anyone that has odds with me saying that, please tell me how that's a bad idea for anyone. Yeah, I mean, it's that's well said, Russ. I think, uh, I, I don't know that I could have said it any better. So, uh, Russ, hey, I... Uh, hey, one, one last thing. Um, I know they're talking about doing away with trail cameras that do the remote sending of pictures. Um, when I heard about that, I don't currently have any cameras that remotely send pictures because most of the places I put cameras, those don't work. There's no cell signal. Um, I was sad to hear that. Now, why would I be sad to hear that if I don't even run any cameras like that? Well, I've been on Facebook, and there's a couple people that I won't, you know, give them a plug or get into it, but they have cameras set up where they get video of mountain lions and caves and other things that I've never seen before. They get jaguars, and they post that, and it adds to my outdoor experience. I think we lose that if you take away that resource. And I would humbly ask those that want to make the remote cameras go away what is it about remote cameras that is such a problem? Like, are we really killing giant deer on the strip because of remote cameras? No, we're not. Are we killing more animals than we used to because of remote cameras? If we are, I'd like to see the data because I haven't seen it. Um, in my case, I was planning on using the cameras to monitor some remote areas for the limited opportunity elk hunts. Game and Fish stated goal in many areas is to remove elk from certain areas in the state. And as an outfitter, it's cost prohibitive to put a camera somewhere and go check in on a regular basis in order to capitalize on those opportunities. I can certainly do that, but the cost that I have to pass on to the consumer in order to provide those hunting opportunities is exorbitant. If I can take advantage of a tool like a remote camera that emails me a picture, I can set the camera up. When the elk show up in the area, I can contact the hunter and go, hey, we've got a elk available. Would you like to pursue them? And if they choose to pursue them, I don't have the artificial inflated expense of having checked that camera every week for a period of time before the elk showed up. So I'm hoping that in our zest to solve an issue or improve an issue, we don't take away tools when used properly can actually enhance game management in the state of Arizona. Good point. Good stuff. Hey, I appreciate you having me on today. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, all continued success in your podcast. I think they're awesome. I think they help a ton of people. I hope that something that we said today helps bring sportsmen together and, and make the situation moving forward together. And for all your listeners out there, I hope they do really well in the upcoming Arizona draw. 
Awesome. Uh, Russ, how can people get a hold of you if they want to chat with you further or pick your brain about things? You can always reach me on my cell phone at 928-814-9622, or you can send me an email at coyote, C-O-Y-O-T-E, rustler, R-U-S-T-L-E-R, at gmail.com. Um, we'll do our best to get back to you as quick as we can. We spend an exorbitant amount of time in the woods with no cell signal, but as soon as we get signal, we'll do our best to respond to you as quickly as we can. Russ, uh, congrats on drawing that Unit 10 tag. I'm anxious for you and Kelly and uh, looking forward to hearing about uh, how your hunt goes. I know you guys will have a lot of fun. Uh, I know you're excited to have uh, your oldest uh, child come home and I'm um, happy for you you and your wife and, and Jacob on that because I know you guys have been missing her and uh, thanks as always for bringing uh, good stuff here to the podcast and wish you the best of success I appreciate it in closing I'd just like to thank my lovely, lovely wife Laura I would not be able to do what I do if it wasn't for her love and support alright yep she is awesome so alright buddy give everyone my love and I'll catch you later okay Stay out of the door for me. Okay, bye.